Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. How's it going, everybody? So today we're very, very excited to speak to investigative journalist Douglas Valentine, CIA researcher and author of several great books, including The Phoenix Program and The CIA as Organized Crime, How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Douglas. I'm honored to be on your program. I hope I can contribute something. (laughs) You absolutely will. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised we haven't had you on earlier, Douglas, because um, we've been following your work for a while. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. I guess just to start, what piqued your interest initially in the CIA? Like, was there a moment where is there a event happening in the world? What was that personal journey like for you? And just describe that, how you initially started to get into researching and writing about the CIA. Sure. Um, My father and I did not get along. And it was not until I was 30 years old, 31 years old, that he called me up one day. He had his second open heart surgery. And he said that the doctors told him that if he wanted to survive, he had to tell what happened to him in World War II. And um, he called me up on the phone. He said, I understand you want to be a writer. Come home. I got a story to tell you. So we hadn't really like spoken in 10 years and I went home and, and he told me he'd been a prisoner of war in World War II and he'd never told anybody in the family about it. And it turned out that um, where he was a prisoner, all all his records were changed and the, um, there actually had been a mutiny. The prisoners had mutinied against their leadership, their officers and killed the, the commanding officer in this POW camp. And it was while the world, uh, the war, World War II was going on that this camp was liberated. And so the military covered it up. Wow. And my father was made to sign a non-disclosure statement and told that if um, he ever told anybody about his involvement in the mutiny and his experience at this POW camp, that he would be arrested. And he lived in fear of the military police knocking on the door and come to get him until finally after his second heart, open heart surgery, he had to get it off his chest. So I wrote the story of my father's experience and that got me very interested in uh, how war and secrecy affect people. Uh, You know, it was purely, uh, my interest in the subject was personal. Um, how does how do these things how do how does uh, being a soldier how does being um, um, forced to keep um, that kind of a traumatic experience a secret how can the government force you to do that how that affects a person as an individual and uh, being having um, come up there in the Vietnam War you know I was seventeen in 1967 and I could have been drafted and. Um, you know, a lot of my friends were drafted. And, and of course, um, uh, I was very interested in writing about the Vietnam War. So I went to a VA hospital and I, uh, after my fa- the book about my father came out, and I asked if there was a, um, anything, any facet of the Vietnam War that had been kept secret, 
<laughs> and because I, I wanted to, you know, I mean, basically, due to the, the um, controversy of the Vietnam War, a lot of um, Vietnam veterans who came home could not talk about their experience. And so as a general phenomenon, Vietnam veterans were somewhat censored from talking about what it's like to fight a guerrilla war, to be involved with um, uh, actions against civilians in their home country. You know, it wasn't like World War II where you were fighting panzer divisions or, or fighting Japanese on um, an island in the Pacific. Soldiers were immersed in this in the um, civilian societies fighting guerrillas, and and there was lots of things, terrible things that happened that they were not that they were prohibited about talking about when they came home. That's just generally speaking about the experience of soldiers from the Vietnam War. So right. the, you know, there's that prohibition to begin with. But the guy, the VA director, said, um, well, I have a guy here who was a, had been in the Phoenix program. And I said, what's that? <laughs> you know, and he said, well, I'll get him to talk to you and he can tell you about it. And I want to get into what the Phoenix program is. But first, really quickly, I, you know, a lot of people don't really realize the CIA wasn't always part of the U.S. government. I mean, it was created less than 100 years ago by Truman under the National Security Act of 1947. I guess, what was the initial stated purpose to create this agency and what incentivized the U.S. empire to bring it into existence during this era? Well, there's no question that um, communism was the big incentive. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the emergence of um, the Soviet Union as a superpower uh, after World War II, um, certainly it's... Um, getting a hold of the atomic bomb, and um, also the emergence in 1949 of communist China. And there could no longer be, um, again, it was going to be very difficult to fight conventional warfare when everybody had an atomic bomb. Now, Korea was probably an exception. Parts of Vietnam were an exception. But it, it, with the end of um, World War II began an era of the Cold War, where the United States was going to have to fight counterinsurgencies around the world. It was also going to try to roll back communism in Europe and in Asia, and it needed a, um, a force that could do this covertly, that mm -hmm. could uh, conduct sabotage and subversion operations in countries that were under Soviet and Chinese influence and do it without the public knowing. And so it looked to a model for the OSS, which was the World War II um, civilian organization called the Office of Strategic Services, which had, which had been formed to do that exact same thing, to secretly insert itself into countries which were occupied by Japan or Germany, to um, uh, set up covers uh, for their operations, and then to conduct uh, sabotage and subversive occupation uh, operations in countries that were occupied by Germany and Japan and to work with guerrilla units to form a resistance against the Germans and the Japanese. So that kind of a CIA organization had been created after uh, during World War II, the OSS. 
And the, many of the original CIA officers came out of the ranks of the OSS. William Colby, who ended up being my patron, um, had parachuted into France in World War II as part of the OSS and worked with uh, La Resistance, you know, set, uh, sabotaging um, uh, German railways and, and telephone poles and communications and doing all those sort of guerrilla activities. Um, um, a number of the CIA officers that I, that I spoke with had been part of the OSS and they were like the, um, they're also referred to as oh so social or oh so sexy and a lot of them had come from the upper class and they formed this core of the CIA when it was initially created that had ties to um, uh, the industrial giants in the United States, people like the Mellon family, the Rockefeller family, um, the Roosevelt family, who all had members in the OSS. And these guys had intimate relations with um, the major newspapers. Uh, the, the OSS relied on propaganda. It was, uh, in, in terms of subversion and sabotage, what they used to call morale operations were one of the biggest things. Um, um, destroying the will of the enemy to fight. This is what guerrilla groups do. They, you know, in World War II, it was as simple as uh, writing on a wall on a wall in in some um, village in the in the French countryside. The resistance lives. You know, and and people in, you know would think, or you know, it's there's hope. Um, of course, all that changes and becomes much more sophisticated when the CIA is created. These people who were um, very articulate, very knowledgeable about um, psychology, anthropology, uh, how, to, how to affect political and social movements, moved into the upper ranks of the CIA and became very important and it became you know, crucially significant in its covert operations. How do you, after World War II, get the um, uh, communist movements, which had, were very powerful in Italy, very powerful in France, how do you wean them away, the communists away from the Soviet Union? How do you court the communists and bring them into social democratic movements, which are more in tune and aligned with the interests of the United States? So those were the original um, uh, things that the CIA was formed to do was to change the political and social psychology of, of Europe and in Asia after the war. And, and they hired uh, experts from across the board who knew how to do that, how to influence people's thinking to make them do this. And of course, there's also um, um, creating guerrilla groups covert inside inside uh, and this is what you know largely the uh, paramilitary branch of the cia was created to do to create guerrilla groups inside hungary czechoslovakia um any country that was under the um the influence of the so you know which was called part of the a satellite of the soviet union and europe in those times how to create armed resistance groups and how to do that covertly. You have to, it's like smuggling operations. You have to cross borders. 
without being identified. You have to have a fake ID. You have to have a fake identity. You have to have contacts waiting for you inside that country. You know, when you set up networks of um, informants, which is one of the reasons that the CIA hired so many former Nazis into its organization after the war. Guys like um, Gellin, who has, was a very famous German general, ran uh, uh, German intelligence operations into Eastern Europe. So the CIA hired him and he activated all his intelligence networks in Eastern Europe. And then the CIA was able to capitalize on those informant networks that were already in place. This sort of thing happened all around the world. And this is what the CIA was doing um, uh, through propaganda, psychological warfare operations, political and psychological uh, warfare operations, changing the political environment the psychological environment across in, in every country in Europe and also in, uh, in Asia, trying to do that to the extent they could and creating guerrilla groups to actually fight against, um, to you know, conduct uh, sabotage operations against the Soviets. That's how, that's the, the original purpose and that's how it originally starts operating. They, one great example, the first great example of a CIA success <clears throat> was under the um, operational direction of a guy named James Angleton, who had run, been in charge of the OSS operations in Rome, um, in Italy, uh, at the end of World War II. He stayed on and went to work for the CIA, and through him, they were able to um, swing the first election in Italy after World War II to get rid of the communists and install a social democratic government. It was, you know, a phenomenal success, which was, and then became a model for how to do that, try to do that in France and, right. and everywhere else where there were, where, you know, the communists had, had emerged from World War II as the only people that who, who the people who had really resisted the Nazis, you know, they're the ones who formed the, the the underground. So, so one day the guys like Colby went from working with communists in the in the underground in France to opposing them, and mm -hmm. communism, of course, became the the great bugaboo, and and um, especially out in the Far East, once. China, you know, became the, the People's Republic of China, gained control of all of China in 1949. And, and, and the CIA could see that happening. And it set up bases in every country in Southeast Asia and Asia that bordered China. You know, they started sending people into Burma, into Thailand. Um, of course, the Korean War starts, you know, really, you know, it's interesting how romanticized stories like, um, you know, James Bond, like the, the kind of things that you're talking about, the fake identities going across the border, um, having, you know, covert meetings with people. You have Tom Clancy novels, you know, Jack Ryan, uh, the, the famous show today that just, again, romanticizes this idea that these agents are working to stave off, you know, subversive plots that are really threatening <laughs> the freedom of American citizens. It's just absolutely bizarre. You know, when you're talking about what the reality really is of the CIA going back 
to World War II and beyond. Yeah, Douglas, you, you brought up something that's I think a lot of people know about now that the CIA started recruiting Nazis. But one thing I'm interested in is when the CIA first started, do you have any examples or do you know of any instances where they had to literally recruit like career criminals for things like being able to forge passports and documents? Because it seems like, I mean, maybe the government was already very skilled at doing that before, you know, the CIA existed, but I would imagine they would have to essentially mine the world of the criminal underworld for to find people that who were very skilled in that. Is that was that the case, or is that well, I mean, sure, just totally you know, um, making that up? <laughs> before the CIA existed, before the OSS existed, the U.S. government was finding ways to do all these things. Anyway, I mean, it it, it did the you know um, assert, you know starting when Teddy Roosevelt started the Spanish American War and the United States started um, you know uh, stealing colonies from the old colonial empires. They they learned how to do all these things, and they relied a lot on on people who were privateers in those days. Guys, uh, there's a very famous guy named William Pauley who had um, businesses in Cuba and he had um, businesses in in China before World War II. And and um, uh, when these people lost their businesses, they still had connections, and they became people that the the CIA would rely on, um, people who own airline industries, um, you know, would help the CIA because they, they wanted to um, uh, uh, recapture their, you know, their, their holdings in foreign countries where they already had connections, uh, or they would send in people to, um, uh, you know, uh, after the war when they wanted to create businesses like Pan America throughout South America or into Europe, they would give the CIA, they would provide cover for CIA officers who were operating. So you would become, you you know, a CIA officer would have identification as an employee of Pan America. You know, now he has a right to fly all the way around the world. One thing you have to understand about CIA officers is they don't walk around with an ID saying, hi, I'm a CIA officer. They walk around with an ID saying, well, I work for the State Department or I work for um, Pan America or IBM or uh, I work for a security company or I'm with the Army. You know, I mean, they everything that a CIA officer does who operates overseas relies on having what's called a fully backstopped cover where if you search for this person's identity, it will just lead you down a road until, you know, of, of a bottomless pit and you'll never be able to find his correct or her correct identity. You know, everybody has a cover. And the CIA from its beginning has what's called the central cover staff that does nothing but create false identities for CIA officers. I mean, that is the essence of operating overseas. Now. You're correct in suggesting that um, um, having criminals helps. For example, um, the CIA wants to conduct a burglary in Spain. So it goes to a police officer that it knows, let's say in Barcelona, and it says to the police officer who they, they help by, by giving him a car when he needs a car, you know, or, or, or they help him make cases because they have intelligence on, 
on people who are coming into Barcelona from Algeria or something like that. So this police officer in Barcelona is, has CIA contacts and he's willing to help them. And they, CIA needs to conduct a, a burglary in somewhere in Spain or maybe even in another country in Europe. And they say, do you, do you have any burglars that you can lend to us for a couple of days? <laughs> you know, or do you have a safe cracker? Or do you have an assassin? some guy who's a professional hitman. And, and this happens in every country around the world. So the CIA doesn't have to have a James Bond. It doesn't have to have a staff of its own assassins. It merely has to have contact with other countries who have killers and, and therefore they don't even have to you go all through this, you know, uh, James Bond rigmarole the, or the, or the um, Jason Bourne a rigmarole. There's people who are willing. There were people in Vietnam who were able, were willing to conduct an assassination of a hundred dollars. You know, wow. there's poor people who are starving all over the world, and you know, some kid uh, who's 14 years old in El Salvador, the CIA can go to a, a, an army officer and say, you know, get it. We need this this, um, for example, missionary who's you know. Um, uh, or a labor leader. We need somebody out of the way. And a military officer who's been trained in the United States at the School of the Americas or something that, like that and gone back to El Salvador or uh, Argentina or wherever, the CIA then says, well, it's, you know, we need you to do us this favor. And there's, there's somebody there that'll do it for them. And there's actually yeah. no connection ever to the CIA. So those things are very easily done. How extensive those operations are today, you know, just in Colombia alone, all the labor leaders that are killed. I mean, this counterinsurgency method, training proxy forces or simply recruiting individuals in these countries like you're talking about that just want to make a quick buck with no connection or accountability back to the U.S. government at all. Um, back to the Phoenix program, because this is obviously something that was part and parcel with the program in terms of the counterinsurgency in Vietnam. It's fascinating that William Colby, you know, gave you kind of this approval to access CIA officials to discuss the ins and outs of this top secret clandestine program that um, essentially was committing atrocities. You know, I mean, First, talk about that. I mean, talk about what you uncovered and how surreal it was to talk to CIA officials. Um, did they compartmentalize their actions? Did they fully understand the bigger picture of what they were involved in? Why do you think they opened up to you about what was going on when the whole point of the CIA is this veil of secrecy? Well, that's a big question with a lot of parts to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let me just say that, first of all, uh, you know, like you say, use the word surreal. There was always a surreal quality to it. Uh, I, I had published one book, this book about my father, and I wanted to write about the Phoenix program. I was not a graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism. I was not Morley Safer, who worked for, the C for CBS and had been a correspondent in Vietnam. I was nobody. And I wanted to write this book about Phoenix. I found that, that Colby was, you know, the star of Phoenix. I didn't know anything about it. I sent him my father's book and asked for an interview, and he said, yeah. 
Wow. So being kind of, um, for lack of a better word, naive, I didn't think that anything about it. You know, I just went out and talked to him. I put on a suit and a tie and, and um, you know, I look good-looking guy, white. I had learned <laughs> proper manners, you know, going to Sunday school, you know, until I was 16. I, uh, I was smart. I could, you know, um, uh, talk logically about what I wanted to do. And so he just started, he said, yeah, I like the idea. I want somebody to write about Phoenix. And he introduced, the first guy he introduced me to was a guy named Evan Parker, who was the first director of the Phoenix program. And I went to see this guy, Parker, and he was one of the very first CIA officers I, I spoke with. And he was a vuncular. You know, these they're not, <laughs> they're not like, they're exactly like you and me. They're just people. Um, if their neighbor's house was on fire, they would run in and, and risk their life to save the women and kids and the pets. You know, there's, there's that side of them too, where they're congenial. Uh, in fact, being congenial and, and um, it's almost a requirement for being a CIA officer. You have to be able to get people to like you if you're going to manipulate them. You can't, right. you know, there's a couple of guys <laughs> in the CIA that are just psychopaths that you have to walk around with them on a leash. But most, you know, they're operators. So like Michael Scheuer? Congenial, sophisticated people who get you to like them. And, you know, so it was easy to talk to them. It, they, they did not, once Colby had said, yes, talk to me. You know, it was easy. They just accepted me. So I kind of lucked out. And, um, for example, this guy Parker, and I've told this story before, uh, invites me up to his den and um, has a little coffee table, and there's a bunch of documents on the coffee table. We talk about Welch poetry. Uh, he's doing, he's retired. He's a deacon in his church. Um, he, uh, is doing research on, on whales because he's Parker's a Welch name. You know, I mean, he's just a guy who's retired. He had a stroke and he's kind of, you know, there's nothing threatening about him at all. And we talked for an hour about nothing, just getting to know each other and, you know, like making small talk and friends. And he said, I'm going to go get a cup of tea and some cookies for us. I'll be back in 15 minutes. And he goes downstairs. And I open up the file on the coffee table, and it was a roster of everybody who was on the Phoenix staff when it was created. Wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, I could have been an idiot and just sat there for 15 minutes and not looked at the folder. You know, I mean, I was smart enough to realize <laughs> this is what he wants me to do, so it's sort of deniable, you know. And I copied down every name, seriously. And 15 minutes later, he calls up from his kitchen downstairs and he says, Doug, I'm coming up. Yeah, that, no, that's that's very clever. Actually. So I closed the folder and I, I, you know, put my notes away and sat there with my hands in my lap. And he came up with the tea and the cookies and winked. You know, and, and there were a lot of experiences like that. Once people 
another part of your question was, you know, the compartmentalization. After a year or two of meeting people and them talking to me, and, and, you know, because I had Colby's approbation, a lot of them were starting to think I was actually a CIA officer doing some kind of official history. And after a year, I knew more about the Phoenix program than any individual who was part of it. Because I had talked like to guys like Parker, who was a you know a superstar. He was the director of the program for the first two years. A, a guy who was a lieutenant working out in some boondock, what they call dioc. You know, <laughs> you know. I mean, the idea that I talked to Parker was like, oh my God, you know. Of course, you know more than I do about the program. But I also Colby introduced me for example, to a guy named Tom Donahue, who'd been the head of covert action in South Vietnam from 1964 to 1966. I mean, this is a guy who ran all the covert action programs in South Vietnam at the time leading up to the creation of Phoenix program. And he explains it all to me on Colby's word, just saying I was okay. And I got him on tape, like I got Parker on tape. I mean, these were, this was the PhD, beyond the PhD level education of what the CIA is like and what happened in South Vietnam. And the more of these kind of really um, upper executive level people that I spoke to, and the more I knew, I, I just ended up knowing more about the program than any individual. And people just started thinking that I must be CIA too. And, and having <laughs> How do we know you're not? You know, was, how do we know you're not CIA? San Francisco for a year in the criminal underworld. You know, I was not about to, you know, blow my own cover. If these guys wanted to let me hustle, I'm fine. You know, right. I just effortlessly went along with it until, of course, they, after about two or three years, I figured it out. You know, and then, then the doors started closing, but by then I already had all the information I needed. But it has never happened that way to anybody else in the world, mm -hmm. and it will never happen that way again. I mean, after I got in and wrote my book on the Phoenix program, this, you know, the CIA being a bureaucracy, you know, took all the measures it needed to take to prevent anything from that, like that ever happening again. Well, why do you think that the window was open for you? I mean, the fact that William Colby opened this, they guided your research, they helped you. I mean, they wanted you to essentially write about this. But but then there was all this bureaucratic maneuvering to try to prevent the publishing of the book. And for those that don't understand, can you briefly just talk about what the Phoenix program is before you move on? Let me talk about Phoenix first, okay? And it was... Um, it becomes the model for the kind of operations that the United States conducts in Afghanistan and in Iraq, okay? But mm -hmm. back then in 1967, when the program was created, it's something new. And what, it, what the CIA did was it brought together all the military, police, and intelligence agencies that were working in South Vietnam and directed them against the communists, shadow government okay and and um for two years up until that point william westmoreland and the military had been fighting um uh armed north vietnamese 
battalions and divisions and armed um, liberation of South Vietnam, the you know uh, battalions in regular armed uh, engagements. But the population, the rural population, which was 90% of the people, were supporting the North Vietnamese and, and the guerrillas. And the CIA had to figure out, in order to win the war, a way to bring the, these rural people who were supporting the insurgency over to the side of the South Vietnamese government. And they concluded, after a lot of failed experiments in, uh, again, political and psychological warfare, the kinds of operations that usually work to bring um, a society over to the American to American policies, to con they couldn't couldn't quite do that with the Vietnamese. You know, Vietnamese were um, they're not Christians. <laughs> you couldn't appeal to their you know belief in God. There was they were really stymied about how to win the hearts and minds of these Buddhist peasants out in the countryside. So they decided the only way that they could win the war was by creating this Phoenix program, which would assemble all the military intelligence agencies and, and paramilitary agencies, all the police, uh, paramilitary police forces, um, and um, all the intelligence agencies, like the special branch of the South Vietnamese police, under the, uh, under the guidance of the CIA to disrupt the government to, to either to first identify the members of the secret government, then to capture, capture them, and if they couldn't be captured, to kill them, to kill them in ambushes or to kill them by dropping bombs on wherever they were located, um, or by sending out hit teams, and and that became the way that the CIA was going to win this war, and that's why I say it's the same thing that happens in Iraq, and the same thing that happens in Afghanistan where you can't appeal to the, the, the people in a, in a particular country. You can't use the usual methods of political and psychological warfare to draw them over like you did in, in, in Europe. You have to have a new way of doing it. And that just becomes this, this, um, this way of, of, of covertly killing off their political um, infrastructures. I could explain that and, you know, how, how in South Vietnam that was organized. But if you know how um, um, it was organized in, in Afghanistan or Iraq, you have, a, you have an understanding. And, and as America became um, the policeman of the world, starting in the 1970s, Phoenix became the model for how it was going to police its empire, how it was going to police the, the countries that it invaded and conquered without actually having to um, um, bring in armed divisions, without having a, you know, a, a division of Marines sweep across uh, the countryside. It's these, very, it's these paramilitary police operations that um, uh, identify the insurgent leaders track them, follow them, try to convert them and make them into um, double agents if you can, spreading uh, agent nets uh, around the country. I mean, this was a big part 
of the Phoenix program was turning as many people in the villages into informants as possible um, so that you can identify who the leaders of the insurgency are. So you learn how to, you know, who their brother and sister is. So if you want to try to approach them to turn them into double agents, you can do so without anybody knowing by, by saying to their brother, make it a pass to this guy and see if he'll come to work for us and tell him if he doesn't come to work for us, we'll kill his family. Well, wow. you yeah, know, yeah. And, and these kinds of like um, really devious uh, and, and, and initially they were considered illegal by the United States Army. Um, there was a hearings held in 1971 in the United States Congress into the Phoenix program and four Congress people issued a report in which they said that, that Phoenix was illegal, that it violated the Geneva Conventions, the rights of civilians in a foreign country to due process which was totally non-existent with the Phoenix program. You have Americans leading militia forces and, and police forces that work for it, going after the civilians in a foreign country who are exercising their rights to try to create their own government. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and, and it's funny because a guy named Dellums, who was a congressman at that time, was still a congressman when the, you know, when the, during the Iraq war and, and people were, were going to him and saying, isn't this illegal? And it was just kind of making me laugh because, you know, <laughs> Dellums had known it was illegal for 40 years. But this is the way the CIA and the military operate nowadays. Phoenix proved to be so successful in South Vietnam that it became the model for how the um, military eventually reorganized itself and how it now operates around the world. In, in the, I went to, I talked to one general, a guy named Bruce Palmer, who had led a division of Americans in South Vietnam. And I said, what did you think of the Phoenix program? And he said to me, when they, when they came to me and they said they, they were going to create the Phoenix program and they wanted me to put up, contribute army lieutenants to, uh, army lieutenants, intelligence people to the program, I said, no, I objected because army lieutenants vow to um, uphold the rules of law, of ground warfare. And this would make them break those rules, which they are pledged to uphold, which is you don't go out and kill civilians. Douglas, I wanted to interject uh, something really quick about, because you've written about um, Daniel Ellsberg before, and you have a different take on him than a lot of anti-imperialists or anti-war activists tend to have on him. Well, and yeah. I, So this uh, congressional investigation into the Phoenix program, did that happen after the Pentagon Papers? And what are your actual opinions on Ellsberg and his sort of status in the anti-war scene as a whistleblower? What are, what are your real feelings on him? Let me give you the five-minute story, okay? Um, one of the people that William Colby actually sent me to interview. You know, he called up this guy and said, talk to Doug. It was a guy named Frank Scott, who had worked for the US Information Service in Vietnam. He had been there from 1962 and um, on through up until 1972. He ended up working for Colby at the Phoenix program. They were good buddies, Frank Scott. So I went to interview Scott. 
And Scott, one of the first things he said to me was that he and Dan Ellsberg had lived together for two years in South Vietnam. And that Ellsberg had been part of, uh, and, and Scott worked, even though he was with the U.S. Information Service, he worked very closely with the CIA. And they were working for this guy, Tom Donahue, who I mentioned early, earlier from 1964 to 1966, had been the head of covert operations from the, for the CIA in South Vietnam. And they were developing anti-infrastructure operations. The infrastructures that the, the, the operations that then become part of Phoenix, these paramilitary police operations, the targeted assassinations, the, you know, um, learning where the guerrillas live, where their leaders live. Scotton and Ellsberg, from 1965 and through, from in 1965 and 1966, were developing the pilot programs. And Ellsberg in his movie, the movie he made about himself, shows himself as a soldier, you know, an army soldier. And in his biography, he never talked about that two years and what actually went on with his work for the CIA, when, when he was actually dressing in black pajamas so that he looked like a, you know, a, a Vietnamese peasant and going out with Frank Scott and then these guys and, and um, knocking people off, kidnapping them, learning how to develop these programs. So, so um, and Scott and Russell told me, as, as did another guy, Lucien Conine, who they worked with very closely, that um, Daniel Ellsberg was very famous for those two years he was working with them. And he was a bit of a swordsman, a ladies' man. And Ellsberg had a romance with the girlfriend of a Corsican drug dealer. The guy's name was Michel Sagan, and the, and the girlfriend's name was Germaine. And Ellsberg has this, uh, even though she's the, the girlfriend of a Corsican uh, gangster in Saigon, he has an, a, a, this whirlwind romance with her. And so this Corsican gangster gets Dan in his villa. And at the time, Dan was in the, the villa of the uh, CIA station chief in Saigon, a guy named Jan, John Hart. And that the Corsican comes over to Hart's villa and puts a gun to Dan's head and tells him either you you know get away from my girlfriend or I'm gonna kill you. So Scotton and Conin both told me this story. And Conin, who had been in Vietnam since 1952, had to go and was actually the CIA's liaison to the Corsican drug smugglers, had to go to this guy Michel Sagan and the and the and the um Corsican uh, leaders and say, look, at you, 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 you got to lay off Dan or there's going to be a war between the CIA and the Corsicans in Saigon. <laughs> so they backed one. Now, Dan Ellsberg puts none of this in his biographies, okay? And nobody, uh, you know, I mean, A.B. Goodman doesn't ask him about, well, tell us about your time working with the CIA or your romance with Germaine, you know, or, or your, you know, your inner, you know, um, experience with Corsican gangsters, you know, so there's this whole, there's this whole area of, of Dan's, Daniel Ellsberg's experience, which is directly re relevant to the Phoenix program and the whole unfolding of, of the CIA of the Vietnam War that is, is secret.
and never gets talked about. So I talked about it and because, and, and I actually interviewed Dan about it, you know, and he gave his side of the story, but he didn't deny any of this. You know, it's all true. But I've been, you know, people get really mad about it for talking about it. <laughs> they think I'm, I'm attacking Dan, you know, but I'm just telling the truth about what happened. But understanding that he is an icon on the left and that if this, his experience with all these CIA assassins were to become public knowledge, his brand would not be as um, marketable. All of a sudden, he's not the paragon of the left. You know, he becomes a guy who is, who, who, and again, I'm not standing in judgment of him. All right. Uh, I've known too many of these guys to stand in judgment of them. This is just what happens. You understand, Adam? Yeah, right. These yeah. are just the facts of what happened. And no, I mean, I had, I had no idea. I, yeah, I did not know that. And they do terrible things. Right, of course. And then they come home and they can't talk about them. But right. when a person comes home from the war and he becomes an icon of the left, well, then the left protects him. And they don't want his, you know, involvement of these things to become public knowledge. And they do that by, to some extent, attacking the messenger. You know, so <laughs> so I told the truth about Dan Ellsberg. So I became, you know, in, in a, a lot of people would negatively review my book saying he attacked Dan Ellsberg. They do not talk about the facts of the matter right. as I've presented them to you. And there's a right. the story is much more involved and I'm it's sure a very it interesting story and it would make a much better movie than sure. any movie you could ever see you know imagine about dan ellsberg i mean what are the yeah. things one of his jobs in south vietnam i mean he had a photographic memory and and he was this you know handsome swashbuckling guy who would take any kind of risk and he could speak vietnamese and the cia station chief in Saigon, a guy named John Hart, actually recruits Dan Ellsberg as a confidential agent to work for him. And Dan would go to these swinging soirees that they would have in, in South Vietnam. And Frank Scott and this guy who was Colby's friend introduced him into the you know, um, upper echelon of South Vietnamese society. We're talking the finance minister, uh, the president's inner milieu, uh, opposition party leaders, and they would have, you know, really swanky parties at the CIA guy's villa or some plantation owner's villa. And Dan would go to these parties and um, to the Cirque Sportif, which was the country club, you know, where CIA officers and Frenchmen and, and, and uh, Vietnamese well, politicians would play tennis or hang around the pool with beautiful girls walking around in mar uh, bikinis, drinking martinis and stuff like that. You know, not the war that you see saw on TV, but this, you know, and Dan would go in and talk to them and they would talk about their plans and their strategies. They would discuss politics and Dan would go back and he report to John Hart what these people were saying. And this is one of the primary things that the CIA does. Its espionage operations are primarily directed at the plans and strategies of its enemies, not just its enemies, but its friends. 
It wants right. to know. It wants to know what the Prime Minister of England is secretly thinking. It wants to know what the the um, uh, the head of IBM, an American, is privately thinking. So you ins you insert a CIA officer into IBM. You tell the people at IBM that he's there to conduct. Uh, operations somewhere, you know, against foreign enemies, but he, what he's really there for is to find out what the head of IBM is thinking. I mean, and this this is what the CIA does in every country around the world. They're duplicitous. They get people to put them into positions of power, and then they learn what these powerful people are thinking and planning, and they go back and they tell their bosses, and this is how the CIA knows what to expect from not Joe Schmo, who's trying to figure out the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> yeah. Their operations are directed against the most powerful people in the world. Going back to Dan Daniel Ellsberg, I mean, I'm assuming he regretted his role in all of these covert activities that you're speaking of, which is why maybe he had a hand in the Pentagon Papers. But, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was a pretty devastating era, Douglas. Uh, you had not only what was going on in Southeast Asia, you had all of these CIA coups against communist governments around the rest of the world, right? Latin America, you had many high profile assassinations across Africa, across Latin America, across the world to usurp the democratic processes of so many countries, both foreign leaders, political leaders here in the US, you had a lot of assassinations going on. It's just an interesting thought experiment to sit back and think, what would the world be like if the CIA hadn't killed so many countries' self-determination? You know, I've never thought of that before, but it's a good question. And um, my feeling, my gut feeling is, and based on, um, for example, what happened uh, after the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, I don't know if you've gone back and looked at that, but, you know, um, there were extensive hearings in the late 1980s about the CIA's um, involvement in the Iran-Contra deal. Reagan said, we will never deal with terrorists. And in the meantime, he created this, um, his vice president, George Bush, created this network, what they called the Enterprise which was headed by a retired Air Force general named Richard Secord, which um, sold tow missiles to Iran to using its war against Iraq. And then it took the money from those sales and it gave it to the Contra guerrillas in Nicaragua to kill communists, okay? And this was all done through Oliver North and this, this vast um, uh, counter-terror network that, that existed below the media radar until in 1986, a guy named Eugene Hassan got captured. He was on one of these CIA supply planes that was flying illegally, you know, into Nicaragua and kicking out supplies to the Contra guerrillas. He got, he got captured and it was an accident and all this became a big scandal. And I knew a CIA guy who was the liaison from the CIA to the congressional committees that were investigating. And his bosses at the CIA told him to tell the, the congressional investigators, if you go forward with this, with this investigation into CIA drug smuggling 
and and how and you expose its covert operations around the world the military will simply take over all those operations and you'll have less control than you have now the answer to your question being if the cia wasn't doing this for the united states the military would be doing it and if the military wasn't doing it for the for the um the government of the united states it would have some other way of doing it because the cia is a projection of corporate uh, corporate power corporations guiding this yes it's a projection of of the of the um corporate capitalism's um uh, inexorable aggression to uh, to bring the entire world within its sphere and if if the cia wasn't here to do that covertly to sabotage and subvert foreign governments to through psychological and political operations uh manipulate political and social uh, movements so they 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 you know become uh more americanized so they'll buy american products somebody else would be doing it and it, this is it's like you know the cia although it's covert becomes a distraction from the fact that the force that's driving it you know and a very famous cia officer named phil age said cia standard for capitalism's invisible army you know i mean capitalism would find another way to do this and and that's the problem and people can get stuck on dan elsberg you know i mean i don't think dan elsberg regrets any moment of his life he had a fabulously <laughs> interesting life most people would would love to have lived the life he lived you know i mean you know I, I, he did one fabulous things now a lot of them were dirty a lot of them are you know what soldiers do or cia officers do but Dan Ellsberg's not the point. The CIA itself is not the point. Understanding how it's organized and how it's it, it operates is very important, but you also have to understand that the CIA at the upper levels is no different than the CIA than the New York Times or than IBM or any major American corporation or any religious institution in the United States Christian religious institution at the highest levels of all these institutions the leadership merges together and the CIA is just one faction of that performing one function the 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 the, the um uh, patriarchal uh, hierarchies of the Jewish religion Catholics the Protestants they're all part of it too keeping this patriarchal capitalist society in place they pro- they have as much propaganda going out every day as the CIA the educational institutions academia they're invested up to their eyeballs in having you know these comfortable lives that they live as academics and and people you know young people paying going in debt up to the eyeballs in order in order to get an education and are in debt for the rest of their lives the people who put these this whole academic structure in place in the United States are operating at the same level as the executive level of the CIA the top of all the all the you know patriarchal religious institutions you can fill in the blanks of all the right. people that go together to create this 
spectacle that we're living in, which serves only the interests of the very rich. You know, yeah. Bill Gates is now, you know, the, the uh, in, in the midst of a pandemic, billionaires are making out like... You see how much the billionaires made from the beginning of the pandemic till now? It's obscene. Douglas, it's criminal. It should be criminal. Douglas, you mentioned uh, Philip Agee earlier, and obviously a lot of people in the national security class were very upset at Philip Agee, to put it very mildly. What is your just general take on what he did? I mean, he allegedly, uh, from what I understand, he leaked over 250 agents and officers' identity to the public, and he said millions of people all over the world had been killed or at least had their lives destroyed by the CIA, and I couldn't just sit by and do nothing. He seems to be sort of an anomaly in the history of people who've blown the whistle on the agency. You seem to speak of him with some reverence, so I just want to hear you speak about what he did and how you feel about that compared to other whistleblowers. I mean, you've already gone on about Ellsberg, but where his place is in history in terms of revealing things about the CIA. If I compare Phil Agee to Daniel Ellsberg, you know, I mean, Phil Agee to me is a hero. You know, he was in the CIA and he exposed how it is organized and how it operates. And not only that, around 1975, 74, 75, um, through a publication at that time called Counterspy, they started identifying um, CIA officers all around the world. AG knew their names, where they were working. And, um, you know, this is the only way to subvert the CIA. <laughs> that was the only possible way to do it is to expose who worked for it. That's if you rip away the veil of this um, uh, secrecy of who's actually there. Now you're damaging the CIA. Uh, that, that's really the thing that has to happen. Of course, now aging has to go live in Cuba for the rest of his life where he's, um, you know, hanging out with guys who hijacked planes to Cuba, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and Black Panther people who had no place to go. I mean, he was a true revolutionary, not somebody, and again, I have nothing against Dan Ellsberg, who, after the, the furor, you know, subsides, makes a nice living here in the United States, you know, and, and, and gets gigs, he has an agent, he does speaking gigs, you know. I mean, he's not living the life that A.G. lived. A.G. really put his life on the line and, and did fabulous things. Um, let me just finish this thought, please, because it's important. As a result of what A.G. did, the CIA created in 1982 the Agent Identities Act, which made it a federal crime to, leave, to reveal the identity of a CIA officer which hadn't been there before. So, so what, after AG and after the, um, uh, uh, the, this really tremendous blow that the CIA took, it became illegal for any CIA officer to reveal the identity uh, or even anybody in the press to reveal the identity of a CIA officer. And since that time, the CIA has spent as much money and as much effort on the psychological control of its own workforce as it does on the psychological control 
of people in countries that it wants to um, manipulate. Very important. The CIA has evolved as a bureaucracy. And as a result of what AG did, it really now spends, it really focuses on how to control its own agents. There's much more careful um, testing for how to recruit somebody. There's uh, um, really selecting where they, what kind of jobs they'll be good at, what, you know, uh, putting them into the proper slots. And in order to rise up into the hierarchy of the CIA, you have to go through all sorts of, um, you know, sort of loyalty tests so that by the time you get into any important managerial position, you're absolutely, the CIA is absolutely uh, certain that you're not going to reveal any secrets. So as with any, um, anything that happens, there's always an effect. So AG did a wonderful thing by revealing the names of CIA officers, but on the other hand, it resulted in this huge reaction within the CIA to make it illegal to do that and to actually improve its own internal operations so that now the CIA officers are more highly protected, more highly efficient, and um, uh, almost totally unlikely to reveal any CIA secrets the way they did with me, you know, the way I slipped in and out. So it's a complicated situation. And just uh, just jumping to a slightly off-subject thing for a second, but, you know, the JFK assassination, just in at least in modern times, it seems to be more acceptable now, um, maybe than any other time previously that I can remember, to outright say that the CIA probably had some role in or was involved in the assassination of JFK. But just personally speaking, do you think that the CIA was involved in the JFK assassination. How does that actually play out for you? Like, what are your actual beliefs on that? Well, yeah, I um, have been unable to avoid the JFK assassination (laughs) because it's a big deal, but I have not, again, specialized in it. So it's not something that I know a lot about. But what I do know is that it's an unsolved crime, that... And and I was not only a writer, I worked as a private investigator on a couple of big cases. Um, I had training from a guy who taught me how to do investigations. And frankly, I I don't waste my time trying to solve a crime where all the evidence has been destroyed, which is the Mm -hmm. case of the Kennedy assassination. So I do not know whether it was the CIA, the mafia, the Cubans, um, and Ted Cruz's grandfather, uh, <laughs> um, you know, who was involved, the military. I just don't know because it's a case that I can't investigate. And, and, and yet uh, if I had to speculate on it, you know, I would say that it, it, in my own feeling was that because it happened in Dallas, that people in Dallas had to be involved, that um, uh, politicians in Dallas, uh, industrialists in Dallas, uh, the scene of the crime speaks to who committed the crime, that whoever committed the crime had to be sure that people on the spot, including policemen, uh, politicians, would help to cover it up. 
Uh, I don't, by my own hunch, I don't think Oswald did it, but I would not spend the rest of my life trying to prove that Oswald did not do it. Proving that Oswald did not kill Kennedy does not prove who did it. And I don't think it's possible at this point to solve that case. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a good point. We know a lot of the things that were told by the U.S. government are not true, but it doesn't mean that we know what happened, you know, and this can apply to a lot of different things, I think, especially the Kennedy assassination. Let's talk really quickly about drug running, because you've written an entire book about this, the strength of the wolf and the strength of the pack, showing how the CIA, you know, infiltrated federal drug law enforcement agencies to ensure that the flow of drugs continues I mean, especially Iran-Contra, I think this is the most famous example of this. But I wanted to get your opinion really quickly on the opium in Afghanistan today, because it's kind of an open secret where troops know they're guarding the fields. And then, of course, ironically, they get hooked on opiates to manage their PTSD at home. But I've looked extensively into this. Um, I did an Afghanistan documentary recently, which I know we talked about. You sent me that beautiful, haunting poem. Um, But the evidence seems scarce proving that U.S. corporations or proxies of these intergovernmental agencies are directly profiting off the opium there. I have no doubt that somehow it's happening. Maybe the evidence will turn up later on with a whistleblower or whatever, but I'm I'm only assuming that part of the reason to turn Afghanistan into this neo-colony is to control the supply, which is in part why we're still there. I wanted to get your opinion on just the drug running aspect of that occupation. First of all, opium is a strategic um, resource. The United States does not grow opium. So it had, so this huge medical industry that we have here, the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. the drug manufacturing companies, huge companies, um, all doctors who use morphine and, and uh, its derivatives and cocaine and its derivatives, uh, oxycodone. The United States relies on foreign countries for its supply of opium. So the CIA is involved in assuring the government that it has access to strategic resources, including oil. You know, I mean, the United States fights wars over oil. Well, it also wants to make sure that um, the United States has access to opium in countries where it buys opium from, which I think at one point included Afghanistan. Uh, I think that it bought, it buys a lot of opium from Turkey. I think yeah. it buys it from India. If you, if you look around the world, you see where there's countries that, that the um, uh, United States does business with, okay? And it needs cocaine. So there's countries in South America it's buying cocaine from. Uh, and these things are regulated industries. At the same time, there's also a black market in these things. And in order to keep prices stabilized, the CIA needs to control the black market in drugs. And it's not necessary, you know, I mean, so one of the, the main reasons for doing that is to keep mark the market here in the United States stable. You can't have foreign countries flooding the market with illegal heroin and then driving down the prices of of drugs here in the United States. So there's economic reasons for it, but there's also the very, the very important reason of 
of, um, again, um, uh, controlling organized crime around the world and the connection between um, uh, guns and drugs, uh, for example, Mexico, or, the, or you can also use Afghanistan. If you're going to get people in Afghanistan who are militias, who are working for the United States, need guns, right? But they need to buy the guns. So if they want guns, they can trade opium for those guns. And if the CIA controls the black market of the opium trade going into Afghanistan or into Mexico, it makes sure that the guns go to the right people and that the opium that comes out goes to the right people. So there's this incentive for the CIA to control international drug trafficking. And of course, the most blatant um, um, example of this, apart from Afghanistan now, was in uh, the Golden Triangle. I first started, which is the, the border of Burma, Thailand, and Laos in, in um, Southeast Asia. And, and when I was writing the Phoenix Program book, everybody kept talking about all the CIA officers and people who were involved in Phoenix kept telling me about the CIA runs the whole drug business in South Vietnam and in Thailand and in Laos. And, and they were actually, you know, you asked about whistleblowers. In 1991, when I started investigating the CIA's involvement in drug trafficking, I was hired by BBC and I went to Vietnam as a consultant to to um, the BBC, which was doing a documentary about Phoenix and the CIA's involvement in um, uh, South Vietnam in, in the war. And then I got on a plane and I went to Bangkok and I went up to a town called Udorn in the north of northeast of Thailand, which right next to the Mekong River and, um, and not too far from Laos. And I interviewed a CIA officer named Tony Poe. Anthony Pesepnik, who was a rogue CIA officer. And he told me how the CIA managed the drug business out of this little town, what he worked in called Huisai, which was in the midst of um, the Golden Triangle. And he told me how uh, Taiwanese pilots who were a member of the, you know, the Kuomintang nationalist Chinese government on Taiwan, working for the CIA, would fly into this little town called Huisai, buy up loads of, of opium and heroin from the processing places were there, and then would take it out and drop it in, in, in oil drums into the um, Gulf of Siam where mafia people would pick it up and how the CIA was running this whole business. So see, uh, Tony Poe was never allowed to come back to the United States until about a month before he died. But he told me how it all worked and I was able to, um, to corroborate it uh, with federal drug agents who were there at the time watching this whole thing unfold. The CIA was directly involved in, in protecting the drug uh, organizations in Burma and in Thailand where the king owned all the opium fields. Uh, uh, and I talked to another guy a couple of days later named Bill Young. And in 1960, who was a CIA officer, in 1965, the CIA hired Bill Young, who had grown up in Burma. His father had been a missionary. So he spoke the language of all the native tribes 
in um, Thailand and Burma and Laos. And he had uh, people who, um, you know, boyhood friends who worked in an opium caravan. And the caravan started with the Kuomintang Tong uh, remnants in Burma. They went to Hui Sai, where it picked up some more opium and sold some more opium. And then it actually worked through old caravan routes into China. And it, it, and it came back to, to Hui Sai with goods that the local tribes people would sell. And, you know, it was just something that existed for hundreds of years. And his, he, as part of a, what was called the CIA's 118 Strategic Intelligence Network, this is cooked up at CIA headquarters. Bill Young becomes the officer in charge. He gives his boyhood friends who are in these native, the Lahu tribes, photographic and radio equipment. And on this caravan, they go into China and they film Chinese troop movements. And they film Chinese people building roads in China and all sorts of stuff that's of strategic intelligence for the CIA. So the CIA is using these drug routes for all sorts of intelligence purposes, primarily as a way to get into foreign countries, which they can then sabotage and subvert in other ways. And Bill Young laid that all out to me too. Yeah. He also wrote about in Strength of the Wolf, you know, and including my interviews with Tony Poe. So, so people know it's on the record how these right. things work. Yeah, I mean, through the research that I have done and what you're talking about now, it seems like the CIA is fully in control of where the, the black market opium is going out of Afghanistan. Um, but it does seem, yeah, like like officially on record, you know, we're buying the opium for pharmaceutical companies from India and Turkey. But of course, there's uh, the control of the black market. And that's where primarily the opium is coming out of Afghanistan toward. Uh, very interesting there, Douglas. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, and, and then it's just also fascinating, speaking of cocaine coming out of Colombia, <laughs> um, the narco-trafficking allegations... L- uh, you know, given to someone like Nicolas Maduro, who like, you know, it's just absolutely astonishing when you look at the actual cocaine coming out of Colombia. This is a, a basically another base of the U.S. military, you know, the, the strongest presence of the U.S. military in Latin America. And we also know exactly where the cocaine is going out of there. I mean, and then you look at the U.S., the largest consumers of cocaine, the largest consumers of opiates. It's just it's as plain as day, but it's just so disgusting when you see the CIA and other, you know, the Pentagon and all these agencies basically just saying, we need to put a bounty on democratically elected heads of governments because they are trafficking drugs. I mean, look who's, look who's trafficking drugs here. (laughs) Like, you know. Yeah. I, I, I interviewed this guy, Major General Richard Secord who was the head of the enterprise in, during Iran-Contra, okay? And because I had interviewed all these CIA guys like Colby and Shackley and, and all, you know, he asked me, Secord, at the, who was the focus of the Iran-Contra investigation, asked me to write his biography. So I spent weeks with this guy. Um, and I asked him about his involvement, he was in Laos for a couple of years, um, helping to run the opium business there. And I said, so tell me about the opium business in Laos. And he said, we were never dealing 
opium in Laos. And if we did, it was policy. (laughs) 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 You know, (laughs) it's not just the CIA that's doing this without anybody knowing about it. I, I talked to generations of federal narcotic agents who from even before World War II were monitoring the U.S. government's involvement with the nationalist Chinese, Kuomintang, in, in China starting in 1926, and how the United States government allowed Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang government to deal narcotics all throughout Southeast Asia. And they monitored it, and they told Harry Anslinger, who was the commissioner of narcotics, what was going on. And this guy, William Paley, I was talking about, he was selling airplanes to the nationalist Chinese so they could fight the Japanese, so they could fight the communists. But the only way they could buy the planes was if they dealt opium. And so amazing. Let it happen. I mean, so this has been going on before there was a CIA. The government will, will allow anybody who's fighting communists or its enemies to deal narcotic drugs. And they, and they don't care because the police in the United States are part of it. Again, it's not just the CIA. It's the church leaders. It's the, the, the New York Times, the head of, you know, the people in, in, in Fox News and MSNBC both agree. You don't give up CIA secrets. You don't talk yeah. about CIA drug smuggling. You know, I mean, they're all part of it. It's policy. It's how it works. And the, the police are part of it, too. Yeah. Uh, I played pool with a guy, shot pool with a guy who was a, the janitor at a health club that I worked with. And this is like 15 years ago. And we would go out, shoot pool, drink beer. And his father had been the head of the Nicaragua narcotic division in the Springfield City Police Department, which is five minutes from here, where I live. And his father told him that they let the mafia, the Genovese family had contacts in Springfield. A guy named Angelo Bruno was the head of the mafia in Springfield. And he was part of the Genovese family. And the mafia would bring the heroin and cocaine up from New York City to Springfield and give it to this guy, Angelo Bruno, and his mafia henchmen. And they would deliver it to the black and Puerto Rican distributors. And then they would tell the head of the narcotic division of the police force what black and Puerto Rican guys were doing with distribution. I mean... And, and the racist police department here in Springfield would make cases on blacks and Puerto Ricans, put them in jail. Everybody, all the white people in Springfield would be very happy that the drug business was, you know, oh, suppressed. Sorry to interrupt, would Douglas. not exist without this modus vivendi between the police and the mafia. Right, and, and it Michael, happens that way in every city in the United States. Michael Rupert definitely helped expose a lot of that. Uh, rest in peace, Michael. Um, but Douglas, we have 30 minutes left, um, and I wanted to get in. Let's dig into Trump. Let's dig into Trump because <laughs> I, I, it's absolutely fascinating the weaponization of real things that you have spent your life researching, right? Like the deep state, 
um, the military industrial complex, all of these things have become essentially partisan. The entire notion of these things have really become cartoonish under the Trump administration. Um, you know, of course, there's a deep state, right? Everything that you're talking about proves that. Uh, what is your notion of the deep state? What does it mean to you through all of your extensive research? And then talk about what do you think about the Trump administration taking this term, hijacking this term, and if it's helped or hurt people's understanding of this apparatus? Yeah, you framed that exactly the right way. There is a deep state. And it was what I was saying to you about at the upper echelons, the CIA is no different than the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times or um, the top, the heads of any industry or the religious institutions. That secret establishment group is the deep state. It exists beyond our democratic uh, democracy and the ability to affect the direction of the country by our measly little votes. The deep state also includes the um, 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 uh, bureaucracies of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And, and, and it, it's the same thing as the CIA. In order to get into the Democratic Party and have any uh, influence, you have to go through a series of, of political loyalty tests, just like to, get, to rise up to the yeah. and become an editor at the New York Times. You have to square allegiance to Israel. You know, I mean, there's certain things that you have to do. And um, uh, it's that way. In the, the Republican Party, you have to follow the ide ideology and, in order to rise up in the ranks. So you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, There's, of course. The deep state is that that uh, the, the the way the political parties um, control the, the move political movements in the United States, and then at the top of the Democratic Party and at the top of the Republican Party, they're both part of this establishment that I'm talking about. They have neither one of these people are going to let you on your way up talk about the CIA and CIA drug dealing. If you want to rise up to the top of the Republican Party, you can't talk about it. If you want to rise up to the top of the Democratic Party, you can't go around smashing the CIA and saying the CIA, you know, there's there's rules and then people know what they are and they're well, you know, established. And it's those rules and regulations that lead to this establishment that controls our society. That's the deep state. But now, uh, I deal a lot with language. And there are things that are real. And then there are things that are representations of what is real. There is symbolism as well as what the thing is itself. And there were German philosophers starting 100 years ago who started talking about how in the in modern world, um, which Guy Debord called the spectacle, People relate more to the re representation of the thing than they do to the thing itself. Okay, so when Trump uses a term like the deep state, he's using it as a representation. He's not talking about the thing that's real. And it's like Jung's <laughs> shadow. It's like the, the Jungian shadow of, yeah. of not only what is going on inside 
of your own unconscious. It's what's going on inside the collective unconscious. And this, these representations and these symbols, like the, the word deep state, evoke things from, from our collective unconscious. They, uh, you know, Trump is saying, um, uh, appealing, uh, th these are things in our unconscious or the things that we can't admit about and face about ourselves. When I wrote the Phoenix Program book, at the, the last sentence was that Phoenix represented the dark side of the American psyche. Well, Trump has, you know, appealed through this term, the deep state, to the, to the deep state in all of us, the dark side of our own psychology. And he's made it okay to be a racist. He's made it okay to discriminate. He's, made it, he, he's elevated the other and put a face onto it. It's a, it's a Mexican immigrant. It's a Muslim, so we have a Muslim ban. And anybody who is susceptible to projecting the evils within themselves onto the other finds, finds Trump to be the answer to all their problems. And, and, and his use of this term, the deep state, completely perverts it away from this establishment that actually does exist to something that becomes a symbolic, a symbol for him to use to advance his own, his own political agenda. And it actually has because it's psychological in its nature, it's created something of a mass psychosis here in the United States, where these, these really evil impulses in our collective unconscious have now been unleashed and they've become legitimate and they've been validated by this guy, Trump, you know, for his own selfish purposes. Because, right. you know, for him, I mean, he's the kind of guy, I gotta tell you, that the CIA hires <laughs> day in and day out. I mean, these are people who have no morality. Uh, these are the kind of people on us, you know, I mean, I've often felt, and again, I, I like to stick to facts and I don't have any factual evidence of it, that Trump's financial windfalls through Deutsche Bank, you know, the $270 million that's unaccounted for, happened in the late 1980s and the 1990s when he got this windfall of money. It was actually probably CIA drug money that it needed to launder through the banks and then give to a guy like Trump who wasn't going to ask any questions and he could then create and build uh, golf courses and casinos around the world and never ask where did the Deutsche Bank, where did this money come from? I mean, this is... The CIA is the most, some of its most important assets. Again, it deals with powerful people, our bankers around the world. I mean, it really is important to have bankers on the payroll so that they can launder all this drug money, all this money that they make through their control of organized crime. So Trump being this kind of psychopathic character who would do anything without asking questions as long as he can make $270 million is the kind of person that the CIA deals with all over the world. Noriegas, um, you know, dictators, uh, people who are willing to sell out their own country in Colombia, people who are willing to sell out their own country uh, in any country around the world, you know, rather than politicians who rather than representing the interests of the people they're supposed to represent, are willing to deceive them 
and make a fortune at the, at the same time. This is the nature of our establishment. This, this is what it shares in common with this subconscious, unconscious deep state, as that these people create this whole elaborate spectacle that of consumerism and deniability and cutouts and these um, political systems that are now, uh, it doesn't seem like there's any way to smash them and create multiple parties here in the United States so people could actually be represented. They've put these things in place over the last 75 years and they're concrete, they're calcified. How do you get rid of them? But it, it allows these people at the very top, this establishment, this actual deep state, to fulfill and to conduct all these really evil, you know, greedy, destructive uh, policies that, that they've used to enslave the rest of the world. And so it, it, everybody, everybody knows deep down inside that that's the nature of the world that we live in. And when Trump uses, says, I'm going after the deep state, that's what they think he's going to do. But actually, it's a reverse of it. I haven't thought this out and articulated it before, so forgive me if I stumble a bit. It's, it's like a mirror image of the real deep state that allows people to um, well, become part of it, to project onto it. It is truly a spectacle and recently, I mean, I actually just saw this on Twitter today that I retweeted you. You were quoting, I think, Robert Anton Wilson, if I'm not mistaken, about just these divergent realities um, and the mirroring that you're talking about. And, and I can't think of a better example than what Trump has done. I mean, created an entirely new reality where people have worshipped him, you know, take his word as gospel. He truly is this kind of bizarre cult leader. And it's just so interesting to me that over the last four years, people have really believed in his rhetoric. I mean, this is a con artist. As you're saying, he knows exactly how to uh, parse his words and and say certain things to make people attracted to that. But 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 the fact that people actually think that he's fighting the military industrial complex. I saw that you know a couple of weeks ago. You said you'd have to be an idiot to think that Trump is fighting the military-industrial complex, but simply tweeting things like end the wars or whatever, people just look at that and they're like, oh my God, Trump wants to bring the troops home. Or, But Douglas, I think you and I both know, and Robbie does too, we've been talking about this on our show for the last four years, is that he is increasing militarism all over the world, doubling bombings, quadrupling drone strikes. It's like, how do people not understand the reality on the ground, Douglas. Mass psychosis. Um, it really is. has nothing to do with it. It's the representations that are what's important to them because it validates these, these deep-seated feelings that they can't admit to themselves. But if you're just simply interested in the facts, the military budget has increased under, under Trump. I mean, that's a fact. <laughs> if he was out to fight the military, he would decrease its budget. The, military, the CIA's budget has increased. He hasn't done, you know, all the 800 bases are still there. The people that people make a lot out of, he's moving some troops out of Germany. Well, Africa Command, you know, Af AFRICOM, I think mm -hmm. it's called, is based in Germany. 
all the, all the CIA's and military operations into Africa are based in Germany, out of American, this American bases there. You know, I mean, he has done nothing. His, uh, the, the amount of drone strikes in Somalia has doubled under Trump. Uh, uh, it's just, it's politics 101. You can't believe what a, a politician is saying. Yeah. <laughs> what they're telling you and what they're doing are exactly the opposite. You know, I mean, people used to understand that. You, you can't believe them, you know, but Trump has appealed to people in a way that's unprecedented. And you mentioned it, you know, the key to it being his the tweet. Uh, yeah. It's crazy, but he is able to bypass um every intermediary that used to um, uh, diffuse a politician's statements or correct a politician's statement. But when he started tweeting four, four years ago, he was you know, using the prime instrument of the spectacle which nowadays, which is the internet, in which there's absolutely no distinction between fact and representation. And he used the tweet to, to reach into the unconscious of 70 million people and to get them to react in ways that they themselves are not even conscious of their reactions. The it's reptile happening. brain, the reptile brain. Yes, absolutely. yeah, 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 yeah. That's another term for it. You know, I mean, Jung would just call it the unconscious. It's, it's the part of ourselves that don't allow us to admit that Dan... Ellsberg was an assassin <laughs> You know, I mean, it's, it's you know. Yeah, you can have two, you can have two thoughts at once. No, 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 it can't have been. He couldn't have done it, you know, and then they just push it back down. But but it's it's who we really are. It's what we are as human beings. And we we can't ever solve our problems until we actually face what we are our own unconscious as individuals to realize that we're not any better than anybody else, that we have the same beast inside of us that everybody else does, and that it's a, a lifetime's work to control that beast and, and that beastly nature, or, you know, to, which can be done. It's not impossible to be a good person, but you have to work at it and you have to acknowledge your own flaws. Well, the same thing has to happen with an entire society that we live in. And when you have people exploiting us, and just like the, and, and, and just last thing to, for me to say, just like the CIA uses political and psychological operations to control political and social movements in foreign countries, it does the same thing here. We are as subject. Yeah. to political and psychological operations here in the United States as anybody in any foreign country. And our government, and again, it's not just the CIA, it's the military, it's our religious institutions, it's academia, and they're guided in their policies from the very top, from the establishment that wants to continue its, you know, living in its hammock and the shades, drinking martinis while everybody else is starving them. And, and being sick, you know, those policies come down. And if you want to have a chance to rise up in this capitalist system, you have to adhere to it. You know, but those policies all across the board 
which are pushing us down. We have to understand as a society that that is what's happening. And, and we have to come to grips with the dark side of our own society, this, the unconscious of our own society, our own culture. And we have to come to it collectively in order to be able to do anything about it. And, and in the last four years, Trump has created a bulwark of, 40, of 75 million people that make that impossible to happen. So in that sense, he has done more for the CIA and the establishment than any other politician that's ever come before. The, uh, the whole idea of any collective self-consciousness has been set back 50 years, thanks to Trump. The idea of us collectively healing, of coming to understand each other as human beings, uh, no difference than a Muslim, you know, because they may believe different things, but we're all human beings. That, that's the challenge that faces each and every one of us individually and as a society is to start becoming self-aware of who we are as individuals, as a society. And it means understanding that we live in this spectacle where representations are more important than facts. And to just start really dealing with everything on a factual basis. What can you prove? What can you corroborate? You know, mm -hmm. just little baby steps of figuring out what reality is and, and working on that way individually and with everybody else. But it's a daunting task because Americans are the most propagandized people in the world. If you go overseas, it's a lot easier to be rational with people. <laughs> they really are able to, it's, it's strange, it's crazy, but they're able to seem like they're able to step back from the spectacle and, and view things in a more rational way. You mentioned something really important, Douglas, about how Trump has done more for the CIA than, you know, anybody else could. And I'm interested in that subject because... In fairness, I think we also have to talk about the flip side of part of what's going on here because, you know, I have a lot of respect or I should say I had a lot of respect for people like Glenn Greenwald in the past for really sticking it to every president that took office and would continue these horrible policies. But I even see someone like him, um, and, you know, I use him sort of as a barometer because he's he is a very smart guy, getting sucked into this idea that Trump is actually in opposition to the deep state, and not just the deep state, but is in opposition to the CIA. And part of what feeds into that, Douglas, and I'm sure you see this too, it's not just Trump merely saying that he is fighting the CIA or is fighting the deep state. It's that media networks, like especially CNN and MSNBC right now, are allowing this sort of parade of national security officials and CIA officials to come on to their program and say that we're sort of the good guys and Trump is the bad guy and it's creating this mentality now where it does seem dangerous where it's resurrecting the CIA's esteem to the point where I feel like there are a lot of liberals now who almost want the CIA to save us from this situation in a, in a sort of a vague sense and I'm wondering what is your take on that because um, you know uh, clearly Trump has his own CIA appointments and he's, you know, giving the agencies everything he wants, but people still have this perception that because John Brennan is going on CNN saying bad things about him, that that means that the CIA is out to get him. And I'm just, I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Cause I'm sure you've also seen that 
playing out on social media and the way people have been talking about this. Yeah, it's amazing to see it happen. Okay, and um, <laughs> I've had a lot of friends personally who my relationships with them have become stressed because they were surve surveilled by the FBI. You know, I mean, the FBI harassed them, um, you know, or the CIA, you know, killed their friends in some foreign country, you know. So it's very hard for a lot of people to um, separate the things out that, yes, the FBI and the um, CIA are instruments of repression and oppression. That is a fact, okay? And that doesn't change by the fact that if a few of them are coming out and speaking out against Trump, that both these things can be true at the same time, that, that they, they feel that their own institutions are at risk. And so um, uh, that their control over society as, is at risk with this mask cult that Trump has created. Now, it doesn't mean that they are good guys. It's the same thing about what I said at the very beginning. You know, I've talked to more CIA guys than anybody I know. I mean, hundreds. And, and a lot of them, like I said, would run into the house next door when it's burning down and save the, the kids, you know, and, and the family. I mean, they would, they, they would do good things. It's not a contradiction that people in the CIA do these terrible things around the world and are um, part of an organization that's dedicated to preserving the establishment and the capitalist class. And at the same time, they are not capable of good deeds or of speaking the truth periodically. This is the real world. But you, you can't divide things into black and white and say that this particular CIA guy at this particular instant isn't capable of doing something good. I mean, look at Dan Ellsberg. He's done a lot of good. He has done an incredible amount of good for the world. The fact that he worked for a couple of years for the CIA does not diminish from that. But at the same time, you have to face the facts of what he also did. And, and one thing, a human being can be, just like a society, parts of good and bad. And, and they can do the right thing at the right time. So it's strange that this is happening. It could only where the CIA is being marched out as the savior to save us from Trump. But if you really understand, it's not a contradiction. It's just part of a, a something that's happened over the last four years that's been an aberration. And it does not mean that you can't oppose the actual deep state that exists, this establishment, as opposed to the deep state, which is Trump is using as a tweet to reach into the subconscious of people in our country and evoke its, its most evil forces. The CIA is bad, yes. Can it occasionally do something good? Yes, <laughs> okay. And it's the way it is in the real world. Now, if only the CIA would do more good, you know, it would be a good world, but ain't gonna happen. And as soon as Biden's in, it's gonna go back to being just a force of repression and oppression around the world. You know, and nobody's from the CIA is gonna have to be marched out and say, don't pay any attention to Joe Biden, he's crazy. Yeah, I mean, how I see it, it's Trump is a clear political liability at this point. And like you said, this is about self-preservation of our institutions and Trump having 
being this aberration of the system, even though he's been a very loyal servant to them, um, yeah, it's just too much. And, and I think that's where the division lies. But Douglas, you've been so incredible. What a fascinating interview. Thank you so much for telling your stories. Where can people find your work? I know that you're also a poet. You have a book of poetry, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, talk a little bit about that and where people could uh, look you up and buy your books. Uh, you know, I always wanted to be a poet. You know, I took LSD when I was 18 and, <laughs> you know, I saw the truth and uh, just wanted to write poetry about nature and love, you know, my girlfriends and uh. the things that poetry is about. But you can't get published as a poet. you you know, got to write prose before anybody will read your poetry. So I ended up writing prose with <laughs> for 35 years, but I always just wanted to be a poet, and I really believe that um, poetry can save us. That poetry, if more people read poetry and study poetry, they can connect with what I was talking about earlier, um, their subconscious, their unconscious. What poetry does is it, it reveals these things that are suppressed within us, and it makes them seem normal and natural, and it connects them to the natural world. Things that we don't like to talk about and see within ourselves, poets bring up, and they can make it seem like the most natural, perfect thing in the world. And you feel more complete, like a more whole person when you read a poem, like parts of you that you weren't really aware of, you know, have been exposed and you've been made whole, and you can't really talk about it in words other than poetry because it's we don't really have words for these things these parts of our subconscious and and um uh, i also cre um edited created and edited a poetry uh, anthology called with our eyes wide open poems of the new american century which is down to its last 14 copies at the warehouse wow. i'm very proud of that and I would uh, um, encourage people to, to try to get a hold of that anthology. It's called With Our Eyes Wide Open, uh, Poems of the New American Century. And do do uh, they go to your website, Douglas? Poets from around the world talking about all the things that we're talking about now. Wow. Do they, how do people buy those books, Douglas? Go to my website, douglasvalentine.com. Okay. But it's, it's true. It's poetry that can save us. The way to bring us together. It, it, it is the way to make us whole as individuals and as, as a society. But getting there, getting to that point is very difficult. There's no money in being fun, you know. And, and it's, it's hard to read poetry, but it's, it really is, it's the way. And right. That's what I would encourage anybody who wants to find some relief and some uh, a way out of the spectacle is to read poetry and to get involved with art and poetry like your art, Abby. You, you know, I mean, it, it, it gets you in touch with, with yourself and, and through that you can get in touch with other people. So, so all the talk of the bureaucracies and the establishment and the, the deep state, it's important to understand how the world is organized and how it operates. But if you want to get out, and if you want to find some peace and find a solution to all this stuff, 
It's through poetry and through art. Beautiful, inspiring words. Couldn't agree more. Art is really, will save us and is how we get in tune with that inner spirituality and to connect with nature. Thank you so much, Douglas Valentine. You are an inspiration and I really, really appreciate your time so much. It was really great to have you on Media Roots Radio. You're very welcome. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, great. Hi, this is Robbie again. If you become a Patreon subscriber of Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio for as little as $5 a month, you get access to our once a month bonus episode. And right now we are doing a long form history podcast series called the Freemasonic History of the United States. We unlocked part one of that series but if you want to get access to the rest of that series parts two through four you can get access to it by subscribing to our five dollar patreon tier and we also have an instagram and now we're on spotify and i hate plugging spotify but just thought we'd let you guys know that take care everybody